there's a lot to unpack with this story. It's there's so much to it, and, and unpacking it is is the challenge. Heath Bullard and David Smith are were not in communication with them. They pretty much refused to have any part of this. So, you know, the most that we have is Heath Bullard's statement about what happened up till the time they got to the rest stop. So I'm going to read Heath Bullard's statement of what happened on August 9th through the 12th of 1994. Okay, Heath Bullard's statement to us, he says, Hi, my name is Heath Bullard, and I went through hell and back within the states of Tennessee and Arkansas. No one believes anything I say about the events of August 9th, 10th, 11th, and 12th of 1994. Here's my story. Please note that I cannot speak for my friend David Smith, who accompanied me during these events. I must state that David Smith, my friend, did not come back as the same person as before the following events. To date, I have not sat down and discussed the things that happened to us on this fateful trip. I lived in Pennsylvania, and in 1994, I was an education major at Cutstown University in Cutstown, Pennsylvania. I was in my last semester and studied Native American history and had signed up to student teach in Arizona on the Kayenta Indian Reservation in August 1994. My best friend, David Smith, and myself arranged to drive cross-country in my vehicle, a Chevy S10 pickup. We thought it would be cool to have a road trip together. Well, we were wrong. Our intentions were to leave August 9, 1994 and take I-81 to I-40 to Arizona, where I would begin my student teaching. David was going to hang out with me on the reservation, and then we would fly back to Pennsylvania. I'm sorry, let me correct that. David would fly back to Pennsylvania. Okay. During this time, I was married and owned a house in Pennsylvania. I was 23 and had a 3.8 grade average. I was not a problem child, nor was David. We were just everyday American kids. We were best of friends, and we told each other everything. I trusted him with my life. This is important to know because after what I am about to state in this paper, we only spoke about maybe 15 times after the atrocities that happened to us. On August 9th, we left from Pennsylvania and began our trip to Arizona. David and I packed our belongings in plastic bags. I had almost all of my clothes and a computer in those bags so that if it rained, nothing would get wet. The back of my truck was packed with bags. We left later in the afternoon to avoid traffic on I-81. We drove straight through, entering Tennessee early morning and getting on I-40. We stopped at a pancake house right before Nashville to get something to eat. The drive from Knoxville to Nashville was awesome. It seemed like we were going down the mountains forever. It was foggy going down the mountains. I was amazed at the tractor trailers just flying past us as if the fog didn't bother them. It was getting light out and my contact lenses were getting dry, so we pulled into some type of center before Memphis. It was daylight. I put my contact solution in and we took off. I was tired, but we wanted to get into Arkansas before resting. We were nearing Memphis and I started I stated to David, we must be getting near Mississippi because there was a stink of rotting plants. 
as we were driving toward Memphis, a van kept pulling up aside, um, alongside of us and then pulling behind us for miles on the interstate. It was a conversion van that was kind of big in the late 1980s and early 90s. The van had tinted windows, but at one point it pulled aside us and with the light with the lighting of the sun, I saw the side window and saw a guy in the back of the van talking on what I believed was a CB radio and pointing at us. I pointed it out to David. David told me to pull into the next rest stop. I pulled into the next rest stop and about eight cars pulled in behind us, but the van did not. I thought, well, that was nothing. We got out of the truck and I noticed a Tennessee Valley Authority white pickup truck pull alongside us. The logo was on the side of the truck. The older white male just kept staring at us. I said to David that this doesn't seem right. As we looked around, we saw many of the cars that followed us into the rest stop. David started to become concerned and I was freaked out. I stated to David, let's just use the restroom. I went into the men's room and began to use the urinal. I looked to the right of me and noticed that the guy from the Tennessee Valley Authority watching my genital area as I was relieving myself. I was totally thinking, what the hell, that's That's just wrong. He was looking at my dick. I said, Dave, we have to get the fuck out of here. That guy was looking at my dick. We went out of the restroom and out of my truck, and we walked to the truck. As we walked to the truck, we noticed six people just staring at us. Dave and I both said, what the fuck? I said to Dave, since I saw the TVA guy looking at me pissed, that maybe they think we were drug runners because we are from Pennsylvania and got all those garbage bags in the truck. I thought maybe they were thinking I was dumping drugs. That's why he was watching me piss. Okay, so that's Heath Bullard's statement. It's basically a page and a quarter. And, you know, we had reached out to him um, numerous times and he really wasn't interested in telling us any more after this. This was it. So the only thing we got one more reply after that. And he said that after he got back from there, he spent five days locked inside his bathroom with a gun. And when I read that, I, t I thought that he meant he was thinking about killing himself. But actually, you said, what was your opinion? My opinion was that he was likely terrified that this cult was going to track him down to his home because, you know, there was a lot of issues where, you know, they, they crashed into this field in Henning, Tennessee, and he had, I'm sure he had his computer there, he had his wallet in there, all this personal information. So they very easily could have tracked him down, whoever this group was. And, and you know, just for the record, we don't necessarily believe this is even a cult or that this is like a satanic cult or a witch cult or a coven or anything like that. It's, it's genuinely unknown. But I think that, that, that he thought was that at this point, I have just been put in this very traumatic situation, very traumatic events, and I need to hide. And I'm going to hide with a gun. I'm going to lock myself in the bathroom because that's how bad the situation really is. Which makes me ask, who would be powerful enough to have the nerve to go to another state and kick someone's door in and not be worried about it being caught? 
Yeah, and it's it's probably going to be the same kind of people that would have a convoy of 20 to 30 people chasing you down Interstate 40 and basically stalking you for three days. And, you know, it's it seems to me that whoever this is, they're very they were very organized on this event. You know, it was very well planned. I mean, it's pretty, pretty high level of organization, I would say. Well, it's also kind of surreal as well, because in his letter, he mentions seeing these tractor trailers floating past him. And the bit we don't really quite understand is where this happened, because his letter is talking about him then seeing this van tailing him and pulling in. And um, we don't quite know where these tractor trailers came from or started trailing him that's yeah and that's that's what's so strange about it too because it's you know i i I think that they're right because their their thought was that they were chosen on the interstate because they had out-of-state license plates which would make sense i mean you're 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 a long way away from home you don't really have anybody that you can go to you know chances are i mean I, i can't imagine that they would have had any kind of cell phone i mean this was 1994 i mean they were around but you know two you know 20 something year old kids are definitely you know probably not going to have that in the vehicle with them so it's i think it was just a real good target of opportunity and i i think that it's it's almost like this group had this conversion van that was kind of out there scouting people first and you know they were they were communicating obviously through CB radio. You know in that time obviously before cell phones, this is the sort of way that people communicated on CB radios and you know especially truck drivers. And the fact that you know he's talking that there were tractor trailers involved in this convoy and that they were all communicating that way and kind of organizing, corralling these guys to a certain area i mean it's a very high level of organization and and it cannot be that this was the first time whoever these people were that that they did something like this well they were obviously so scared on the highway because when they got boxed in at trying to cross into texas and they said that a car wouldn't let them enter and they were forced back onto the I-40. So they literally did a full 360 and turned around and went for about six hours along that highway rather than trying to take any other exits off because they must have been too scared to take any side roads in case they got into more trouble. You know, they felt it was safer to be on the highway. Yeah, they did. And that's devotion too because if, I mean, if you really think about that and driving that long, I mean, this, this whole thing was like, it, it was a 500-mile trip. 500 mile trip. They got completely turned around on Interstate 40. I mean, they were almost into Texas before they got turned around, and it's, that's a long way. I mean, it's it's a really long drive, and it, it's a lot of devotion on on the people following you to travel out that far. And I mean, the thing is, is that it if there were vehicles involved in this as well, I mean, it, that means people were at some point getting off of the interstate, refueling, getting back on. And the whole time, people are in communication and doing this. So it's it's just, it seems so far-fetched that, you know, when when they ran into the sheriff in Prescott, Arkansas, the deputy CA to them. Oh, he said that, Heath and David pointed out these cars or trucks or vans that he said was following them. And the sheriff said, what, ghosts? 
what ghosts are following you. And then he said, they're just local people when they pointed out the cars. Yeah. And that, and that's the thing, too, is that one thing that, that they had also mentioned is that these were the people that were in this convoy had Texas plates, Arkansas plates and Tennessee plates. OK, so it could be, you know, it's it's not necessarily that it was whoever this group is, is concentrated to where they ran them off the road and in and around Henning and Covington, Tennessee. This could be something beyond that. And when you you take into account the many disappearances and many strange things that have happened along I-40, it really does make you wonder that is there some kind of organized stalking going on? And something to look into, which in which we have, is a lot of the cases from the 1990s and even late 1980s. And there's there's quite a few of them. Yeah, there's a, a strange one about a student that went missing from Memphis University, which we'll cover. There's a young couple that went missing. There's quite a few men that went missing. And we have, and right now I know on on the uh, Nightfall and Strangetown site, I'm, I'm kind of updating things there as well, because there's two missing men in Tipton and Lauderdale County, which is kind of where Heath and David crash landed that are missing right now. And these were cases like one was from June, 2019. The other is from August, 2019. And these men just disappeared without a trace. One of them's truck was found in the Mississippi river. It's just absolute vanishings. There's another strange one actually from a few years ago and the search for the man, they came across a grave and inside the grave was buried pigs bodies, which kind of reminded me of the sheep and the pigs. They were kind of rolling in the blood and on the blanket. Even I was thinking, too, he lost his his contact lenses, yeah. okay? But yet he was able to read the mail and to know the address of that's where he true. was at. Like, what? Yeah, that's, that's really true. bizarre. Yeah. And that's one thing that I was thinking, too. He's completely blind where he can't see it, that it's a cop standing in front of him, yet he can read the address of where he's at. And that that's kind of an anomaly in that story. Why would Heath say he thought it was the DEA when all he had were belongings in the back of his truck? So why would that make you think that the DEA were following you? Well, he's he's thinking it because they're on a major interstate. They have out-of-state plates and there's all these plastic bags. So his initial thought is, well, who else could it be? A religious cult chasing after us. <laughs> I mean, your first thought's going to be, well... I have undercover cops, DEA, and they're following us because they think that we're maybe running drugs down the interstate. So that probably the first thought in his mind, seeing the van that was kind of scouting them first. And it's a kind of a bit nebulous, but we think the tractor trailers were around at that time as well. We just don't know exactly from the newspaper accounts and from his letter. So they pull in to this rest stop Mile marker 72 rest stop on I-80 just east of Memphis. I don't know that it has an actual name aside from, you know, just some weird name like Tina Turner, uh, Isaac Hayes, <laughs> something or other. That's that's the weird designations they give to rest stops in, in Tennessee, apparently. And so at this point, Heath phones his lawyer. Right. Um, I mean, in the UK, we don't really have lawyers on tap necessarily but he phones he must have used a public phone in that time so he phones his lawyer and tells him what's happening and the lawyer says confront them and he says you guys are illegally following me and they kind of laugh at him they just kind of ask him well what are you talking about so they had yeah. they had no idea and 
I think one of Heath's statements too, just and this would have been just in an email and not in the actual document statement that we have, is that um, they were pretending to work on a vehicle while they were yes. at this rest stop. So they were they were kind of like looking at everybody and, you know, they had this one crowd of, you know, between six to 10 people kind of trailing them into this rest stop and kind of walking around watching them. And, and he kind of perceived right away, well, you know, these guys must be, they must be watching me. And it's interesting because he said that the actual van that was initially following them didn't pull into that rest stop. It did he not. He said eight cars pull in. The van doesn't, but then a Thames Valley Authority van pulls in instead. Right. And from the sounds of what he was writing about this TVA van in his statement was that uh, the older gentleman in this van, and maybe this is just what I took from it, is the one that was kind of almost seemed to be the real intimidator for him. He had a real... I think he was real spooked by this guy. And I, I think it was the same thing for David, whoever this this guy was, who was kind of watching him at the urinal, apparently had, you know, some kind of, you know, it just he invoked this fear in in, in both of them. That's, that's what I got out of that statement. But it's but, also kind of weird because, so he watched him when he was at the urinal, but Heath took from this to mean he was seeing if I, was on drugs, but you can't see if someone's on drugs by watching them at a urinal, can you? You can't. Can't. And it's a weird, I mean, and it's a really weird thought that he would have had that too, that, um, you know, yeah, he was checking for drugs while he's taking a piss. It just seems really, it just seems really bizarre way to think of things. Um, and what I get from that is there's more of an um, underlying tone that it was some kind of weirdly, uncomfortably sexual Exactly. And that that's sort of what I took from that as well is that and I, I think that that's what really spooked both of them, because I, I as much as I think that they first believed that these were DEA people that were following them along Interstate 40, I think that once they got to that rest stop, I really believe that the mood of that sort of mm. changed. And I think that that also changed. When, you know, he talked to them after getting off the phone with his lawyer, which is weird in itself because a 23 year old with a lawyer on call seems really, I don't know, it seems a little strange to me, I guess. Yeah, and that was, a, right? they're not. And that was, I mean, it could be a family acquaintance yeah. as well. And, and I, you know, I thought, I thought of that as I thought of that too. But um, I think after that, you know, after he confronted this group of guys sort of working or looking at this vehicle at the rest stop, um, I think that's when the tone changed immediately. I think that they, I think that they knew at that point, this was not DEA, that there was something much more frightening about these people. And you're right. I, I really do believe, and, and I, I hate to use the, the term, um, but this had, a, I think that this sort of communicated a real deliverance sort of feel to these guys. And that's why they got, out, you know, they got out of there as quickly as they could and they continued heading West on I-40. So now is where things get strange. It's, it's, you know, they finally get in their vehicle, they leave and they're still being followed onto I-40 by this group of people that they encountered at the rest stop, obviously. Well, to be honest, we were torn, weren't we, about calling this podcast True Detective or Deliverance because it's always reminded us of both. Yeah. 
And in fact, the lawyer that I spoke to who represented David actually said to me on the phone, have you seen the TV show True Detective? And he actually had that vibe about the whole thing as well. Okay, so they drive on to Prescott, Arkansas, and they must have actually gone into the sheriff's office there because the newspaper reports say that they followed up after the story and the sheriff denies them being in the office. So again, they're feeling uncomfortable because they say that there are all these vehicles that have pulled in to Prescott with them. The sheriff says to them, show me the ghosts are following you, and then says, these are local people. So then they carry on again on the I-40, get to Texas, and they're boxed in, they say, by tractor trailers and one car that prevents them from leaving to cross over into the state and they're forced back exactly the same way they came. And then they say that they stop on the highway itself and they pop the berm or pop the hood and pretend that they've got car trouble and a highway trooper comes along and literally laughs at them and says, I can't help you, and drives off. Which which seems really strange as well because... You know, if you're you're a highway patrolman or or a sheriff's deputy and somebody starts saying that, usually you're going to investigate it a little bit further, you know, asking for IDs and, you know, asking, are you okay? Have you used any drugs? And and in both cases um, where they had encountered law enforcement in Arkansas, both cases, they laughed them off. Mm. Both cases. And what's interesting about that, too, is it, it really does make you understand why Heath and David believed that the law enforcement was involved. And I I don't deny that for a second, that that there was maybe some kind of knowing. It's just we have not been able to furnish any proof of that as of yet. Well, in fact, Sheriff Yoakum, who was the sheriff of the actual area where they run off when they go into the field, said, just tell them that it's 10 bucks a day to get their car back and laughed again. So it's just really kind of strange that they were laughed at all the time because it's not normal. It's not the normal reaction to be laughed at by the cops every time you <laughs> stop and talk to them. No, it really isn't. And that that's why I'm saying is that it was it's really easy to dismiss this when you read this when you read this story in the newspapers and in the morning call, um, it's because the police just dismiss it so outright. They're just, you know, they, they make a mockery of it at every Yoakum, step. Yoakum called it a mystery of Apton and Enigma, but he was laughing all the time he said it. Yeah, and, and that's the thing. And it's it just seems that the attitude that, that they had in the face of all of this, and, you know, if, if somebody... Today, and I, I guess I, and I can't speak for, for the mid-1990s how the police would have looked at, at this, but I don't think it would be that much different that if you have somebody saying things that sound like paranoid delusions, you're going to investigate that a little further rather than just saying, okay, you can go back to wherever it is you came from on this major U.S. interstate. It makes no sense. One of the newspaper articles actually said of the story that they get the award for being the most bizarre story of 1994. Yeah. Um, it's very, very easy, and there are some very comical elements to this story, so it's very hard to take a lot of it entirely seriously in some respects. But you would be most likely right in thinking that these boys were on drugs or they had been drinking as they were driving, but, well, as David later gets taken to a hospital after his ordeal, he is drug-tested and he has no drugs or alcohol in his body. So we know that David said after his experiences that he did used to have a drinking problem, but he had not drunk for several years prior to this trip. So we know that neither of them took drink or drugs. I believe it was Heath said that he had been taking caffeine pills. They had driven through the night 
So they set off late afternoon, drove through the night and arrived in the early morning. Yes. So they were very tired, but they didn't have a history of mental problems. Correct. To have made this story up. And in fact, as we progress through the story, they really had nothing to gain by making this story up because they in fact went to the newspapers about it because they were worried that if this could happen to them, it could happen to others. These people could end up going missing. And that's why they were so willing to be interviewed. But for David to be sectioned into a mental health unit on his return and, you know, his family to be dragged into this, they had nothing to gain by making this story up. And certainly if they had made it up, they could have backtracked and withdrawn from it. Right. Um, the only thing, I mean, we're, we're not going to say that this was a satanic cult or a witch cult or anything of that nature because there's no proof that that, that, that that's the case. Uh one thing I would say is that those morning call articles may well have saved both of them in some way because the only thing that I'm I'm willing to agree 100% on with this story is that the people in that convoy were very dangerous. And that plays out as they re-enter Tennessee after being turned around in Arkansas. So they, they drove clean across the state of Arkansas, again, headed east and back into Tennessee. So that's, you know, almost 500 miles. Yeah. So actually it may be over 500 miles. Um, and to me, the the part in where they're in Tennessee in this, and I'll kind of explain why I feel this way, that Tennessee, for whatever reason, especially near Henning and Covington, seems to be almost the home base of whoever this group was. I think that it was probably around this area where, you know, these guys first saw Heath and David's pickup truck. And I think that it was a big, you know, a big organized concerted effort to get them back there. And it's just as outrageous as that sounds. I mean, that is what all the evidence points to is that they were chased, rerouted back to where they came from for 500 miles, toyed with on the interstate and all really, you know, late into the night. And they are entering again back into Tennessee where they're starting to run out of gas. Well, we have uncovered a few interesting characters, haven't we, in that area? We have. Mm. We really have. And of course, the morning call when they reported on it, did say this comes hot on the heels of the West Memphis 3 case, which really is not that far from where they first ran into trouble. Not to say that there's any relation to it at all, but it's also interesting that there could be a lot going on in that area itself, which is what we're looking into. And it's funny because it's, you know, you can say, and, and it is rumour, and I think around, you know, the time of the West Memphis 3 when all that was going on, it was rumours of weird little cults and everything in in that area. So it's, you know, I, I don't know that it's related and it's something that, that we've looked into, but it sure is a very big coincidence that, you know, it's it's Covington and, and West Memphis are as close together as they are. Yeah, exactly. And we know that West Memphis 3 is extremely controversial and really it's a 50-50. Yeah, it, it really is. We understand yeah. that. 
But going through a lot of the documents in that case, it is interesting to know that there's a witness, for example, who talks about a cult who lived on the other side of Covington. So Memphis is sort of south of it. It is. Covington. Yeah. So it sounds like they're a lot further apart than they are because, in, in fact, they're only about 40 minutes away. Yeah, it's it is. It's close. And that's why I'm saying it's a very it's a very strange coincidence. I don't put anything on it at this point, And uh, it's just something that that has to be investigated further. And I think the biggest the biggest thing to me is that there this dangerous group of individuals exists. They may be behind many, many numerous missing cases, missing persons cases, and many of which are in, in that area even to this day. But don't forget the other thing that Heath said in his email to you when he was reluctant to send you any more information other than that one-page document was he was so reluctant it was taking us weeks, wasn't it, to get any kind of response. And one of the replies he sent to you was saying to you, listen, man, you're one of them? Or Yeah, he kind of thought that I was one of them because it was, it was getting very difficult to communicate with him and, and get responses from him after many, many, many weeks of trying. So he and was I, highly suspicious. But he was. the implication there is that 25 years later, he's still very fearful, but he also still thinks this group exists. He does. And I, I would assume, and I and I, I wouldn't even have to assume that, that David Smith also is of that opinion. And clearly this was a very tra- traumatic event for both of them to the point where, you know, and I completely understand that they don't want to discuss it. They don't want to go any further into it or have to re- rehash that because it, it was a... Devastating. Very, yeah, it was devastating. And to go home to people mocking you and not believing you is, is, I can't even imagine. And that, that for me would probably be the most difficult part of it because you know what you saw, you know what you had been through and is, is traumatic as it was. And, you know, it would have a lot of negative effects in both of these men's lives for many, many years to come. At least that's what I was told by Heath. So, mm. you know, it's it's rough. If he's saying now he's recalling it, it's very strange that it could be a made-up story if you're still willing to say that it happened 25 years later. You know, yeah. you've got a family and you're still fearful of it. I would have thought you would just not replied or just said that's just nonsense that was put in the paper. Yeah, exactly. And And when they get into, and that's what I'll say too, is that the reason for this level of trauma is because of what happened as they got toward, um, I th- believe it's Highway 51 in Tennessee. Uh, when they crossed back into Tennessee, they were running out of gas from being on the run pretty much late afternoon into the evening. So they're driving and they're no longer on Interstate 40. They're on a, a small, probably like a county highway. Um, and they're running out of gas, looking for a gas station and they end up out in rural Henning, Tennessee, where they get run off of the road. And that's where details get really strange because the road that they're on, where they were being followed by this large convoy. I mean, obviously they're off the interstate now. Well, the interesting thing is that Keith says in his letter that there's no mention of these tractor trailers and convoy at this point. So we don't know if the convoy was still with them. 
But he said his opinion was that he believed they were unmarked police cars, two of them. Two of them. So his version is that they were chased into this field by two unmarked cars that he thought looked like cop cars. They got stuck in the mud. So they basically just got out of the truck and they fled, leaving all their belongings behind. So we don't know where the convoy was at this point. But they caught up with them immediately once they were in the woods. So the, both the boys run off into the woods. Heath can't swim, so he can't go into the water. David just jumps in the water, and there their separation begins. They got stuck in the mud, so they basically just got out of the truck and they fled, leaving all their belongings behind. So we don't know where the convoy was at this point, but they caught up with them immediately once they were in the woods. So the, both the boys run off into the woods. Heath can't swim, so he can't go into the water. David just jumps in the water, and there their separation begins. That was that. That's the strange thing too, because it's and it's one of those unanswered questions to the story in general. Is that you have they're chased off the road by two vehicles, but yet when they make a run for it and and from the point where they crash the vehicle till the, it's basically a swamp. I think they call it the bottoms and it's right along the Hatchie river. It's a, it's about a one mile run. So, I mean, these Mm -hmm. guys get out of their vehicle, they run a mile, but by the time they're out there and along the swamps in the, uh, next to the Hatchie river, this group of people seem to already be there. Yeah. They're already inside of this area and they're stalking see, them. Because Heath manages to get out of there the next day, but David's there from the 9th until he is put into hospital on the 12th. So he's in there for three nights. And during that time, these people are constantly there in the woods. If you look at what he described his experience to the newspaper, if you look at the breakdown, they're pr- pretty much there constantly which is really strange. So Heath, he says that he he spent the night in the woods and he hid and then the next morning he his words were he walked for miles and miles and miles and he gets to a farm where a woman comes to the door and she allows him to shower and change clothes. He calls his grandfather. The grandfather wires Western Union money to the woman. She drives and goes and picks the money up and then she asks her friends to drive him to the airport so he gets back to Pennsylvania and then he hides for five nights in the bathroom with a gun but David is it looks like in the swamp for three nights so on the first night he hides in the water under the brush and he said that he had been shot at with paint pellets now interestingly the lawyer Mr Vlosak that we spoke to confirmed that when David was taken to hospital the nurse records say that he had paint marks on his body So David says that he's been shot at with paint pellets. He's hearing bird calls communicating with each other. So the people have followed them into the woods, into the swamp, and are kind of trying to round him up by communicating with each other. Then the next morning, David says... So he's spent the whole night in the water, basically. And the next morning, he said he gets out of the water and they start shooting at him again. So basically, these people stayed there and they never left. Right. They They stayed in there hunting or waiting for him. And that's yeah, and that's what what it what it reads like as well because he gives a pretty solid uh, description description of events, mm, mm. 
And I mean, there are a lot of other things that happened in there as well, because I mean, even at, at one point, I think this was the second night or the second day that he was there, he encounters a, a father with his son and, you know, he has his son point a rifle at David and wants the son to shoot him. Now, whether this was a real rifle, whether it was a paint rifle, whether it was a BB gun, I mean, nobody knows, but I mean, one thing is certain is that whoever these people were in those swamps along the Hatchie were stalking him, pure terror. And it's also that they're, they're playing with him because obviously they know this, well, I'm presuming they know the swamps and the woods better than he does. That morning, so he spent the first night in the water and then and, and it's the next morning. He says that he runs for about two miles, finds another swamp, goes in. There's still people shooting paint pellets at him. He said he saw about 10 different people running through the woods. He gets back in the water, in the swamp, hides again. Then he's out, then he's running again. Then he's chased, then he's circled using bird calls. And then he says about this man and the little boy. And the little boy refuses to shoot him and starts crying. Then he says that he runs off. The man, the, the boy's father, shoots at him. And he gets back in the water. And now he grabs two logs, put one either side of his head and floats down it. And then a man in a motorboat offers to help. And again, we're not saying that there's any tie in with the West Memphis Three. But it is interesting to note that there is a peripheral figure in the West Memphis Three case where he was goading one boy to attack another one with a knife. And there was also a witness uh, statement of a man who was in prison who mentions using a motorboat to travel these rivers. So again, I'm not saying that they're connected, but it's just you can see kind of how these things overlap in some respects sometimes. Yeah, they do. Anyway, they, mm. they clearly do. Anyway, so the logs get caught that he's floating down the river on. And then he says he goes back on land. He spends another night hiding under the brush. The next morning, he jumps in the creek again, nearly drowns. And the people who were chasing him, they use a tree branch and they pull him out with a tree branch. And here he says that they were playing with him. So again, it's like at some points, they just let him do what he was doing. They just kind of let him, well, you can sleep there for the night. We'll be back you know, and we'll get you in the morning. They were quite relaxed about knowing that they were confident they could get him. Yeah, exactly. You know, it's funny because it, it almost comes off like the, the, the story, the most dangerous game where you have people that are hunting humans out in some isolated spot. And it's just, it's, it's ongoing, but this is worse. I mean, this is not just straight up hunting, a human being or an animal. I mean, they're just toying with the person and, you know, evoking as much terror as they can in this guy. Yeah. Cause I've said to you, haven't I, why did they use paint pellets? Why wouldn't they just shoot him? And you said, well, it's, they really just wanted to scare him constantly just to provoke terror. Yeah. And, and it makes you wonder how many other times this has happened to people where it's, it's the same thing out around that Hatchie river and the kind of things that go on over there because an, an organized group that seemed to really know their way around that area and to kind of know where he is at every moment. And it's, it's, it's kind of a, because at that point, when they pull him out by the tree branch, David says to the newspaper that he thinks they laid him down on the bank and he went to sleep or he passed out. So they just leave him there to go to sleep for a while, you know? They're so relaxed knowing that they can get him. Yeah, exactly. And and I think the and I, I'm not sure exactly when this happened, but the 
strangest part of this chase between this group and David kind of ends in this this, Is this ritual blood sacrifice yeah. where all of a sudden there's this large woolen blanket and there this group of people kind of encircles David while they sacrifice animals in on the blanket and roll around in the animal blood. And, and I can only imagine they must be in some kind of a frenzy at this point. And, you know, it, it almost comes off as a strange kind of initiation going on here. And, and I don't know if it was, you know, with the kids having a father telling his son to shoot this, this guy in the swamp and the animal sacrifice. I mean, it sounds so completely outlandish to anybody, to any casual observer looking at this story and reading it. They're going to just say, well, you know, the guy's exhausted. He has, uh, yeah, he doesn't have his contact lenses. Um, I mean, at this point he even sees three decapitated heads, human heads sitting in a tree or hanging from a tree. And it almost kind of gives you this um, sort of voodoo-ish kind of feeling to it because it's, you know, rolling around in blood in a frenzy, human heads hanging from a tree. It's very, you know, very primal, almost uh, Lovecraftian in a way. And, you know, it's, it's not something that, that, you're going to hear a lot of in reality. I mean, a lot of this gets into, um, you know, the whole satanic panic. This is the kind of things, you know, these super sensationalized stories from the eighties where, you know, mothers were offering their babies up and sacrifice, or they were skinning babies alive. These just outlandish stories that, you know, are very likely not true. And that that's what this kind of, plays into it sort of plays into that mythology in a way and it's very um it's just it just really walks the line of fiction and reality because when we talk to the lawyer i mean he had seen david's tattered clothes and that there were paintball stains on it so i mean without a doubt he was being shot at in those swamps. Mm-hmm. So that, you know, that's already been established and the wounds, like, cause when you get hit with those things, I mean, they're, it's, it's, they're strong enough to leave a welt on you. So, I mean, every time he was getting hit, it was leaving a rash and there was residue of paint inside of those rashes. That much has already been, been verified. And, you know, that's, that's established as facts in this whole case. And do you remember in the newspaper it said that when he got to the hospital, one of the nurses there said to him that they sacrificed members of their own family. But why would she say something like that? Right. And that's, that's the other thing, too, is that – and it's, it's, it's the same thing with the nurse that said that. And it's also with the same woman that helped uh, Heath get out of town right away is that she hid him in the house – yeah. So most people, if somebody's running around saying people are after them, your first thing would be to think, I'm going to call the cops, get the cops here. Yes. But she did the opposite. She hid him and smuggled him out to get out of the state. Yes. So it's like she knew something was going on. She did. And, and we we may know who this is. Right. Yeah. And that's the thing, too, is that it's it's one of it's 
it's really bizarre because that is your first inclination is you're going to call the police. You're mm. going to get them help. But yeah, she does exactly the opposite, which to me, when I first read the story indicated to me right away, okay, there's something weird in Covington. There's because something what? very strange in Covington, Tennessee, because people are not doing what normal people do. Like you have yeah. somebody that's raving in front of your house. You're going to call the police. Yeah. She brings him into the house, gives him a shower, gives him clothes, gives him something to eat. And I'm talking about Heath here um, and basically sneaks him to the airport. And then the same woman goes to the hospital where David's been taken. He leaves with yeah, her as well. He leaves with her. It's the same woman. Yep. So she she helped both of them escape. get out of. Yeah. She helped both of them get out of Covington and get them back home. But you just wouldn't do that. You wouldn't, because he says that he ripped the ivy out of his arm, she came and collected him, and they hightailed it. But right. That's the exact opposite to what most people would do. Most people would say, you're a complete stranger, I know you need help, so you'd be better off in the, in the hospital, and with the police coming to see you. Right. And she, instead of doing that, almost seemed to understand no. and realize that there was some kind of an element out there that was a very serious threat to them, which made her not call the police. So I, you know, I wonder how much, you know, both of these guys knew or were told from this particular individual who, who got them out of there that led them to believe that this was a cult and that there were police involved because clearly the town, I mean, this woman did not, she didn't call the police. So, to me, that indicates that she has a knowing of something, and there's way more to this story than than a couple guys that are mentally exhausted, uh, starving, and uh, basically hallucinating. I, I just i I don't believe that. I never believed that, even from the first time I, I read this story. And I mean, when we say cult, but we might say cult, but it's also basically a group. So we're looking into whether it could be a group of people that go hunting together who, who have this kind of weird interest in doing things like this. So it's not necessarily, like you said, some kind of satanic thing, but it may be that there's a weird family there that have been doing this for generations and it's just grown into something that's normal to them. Right. And that and that's... That's sort of where I'm, where I lean, and where I've, I've, I've been on this since the beginning. I, I don't, I don't think that this is, you know, a satanic cult per se. I think it's more along the lines that yes, this is some kind of a family that very large lives out in that area. It's, it's spread out, and this is something that, for whatever reason, that they're into and that they do. And I mean. <laughs> I guess in that I guess in that regard, I mean, technically, you could call it a cult uh, by the truest meaning of that word, but I don't think that it's necessarily um, a cult based on any you know sort of religion or philosophy or, or anything of that nature. To me, it just sounds like these are very criminal people, very degenerate people that are probably into just weird things. <laughs> Yeah, and, like kind of being sadistic and taunting somebody or, you know, getting a weird yep. kind of thrill out of how you play with people. Right. And I mean, the other thing, too, to, to keep in mind is that the people that were chasing them were uh, it was black people, white people, uh, men, women, yeah. children. It was it was yeah, no children. specific group of people going after and, them. And, 
you know, the the one thing that's that's kind of important and, and plays into this as well is the fact that when David had escaped this group the, for the last time and he, he was finally <laughs> escaped because, you know, we don't know if he was captured two times and let go, three times and let go. We don't know all the details of yeah, this. And we also don't know exactly what happened to him because something so bad happened that he had to go to a mental hospital and all he kept saying was, I'm going to kill myself. When they extradited him back, he just kept saying, I will kill myself rather than go back there. And he was hitting his head against walls, trying to you know, cope with it mentally and having priests visit him. So whatever it was, we don't know what happened in the swamp, but something happened. Well, we and we know that that it's probably much worse than what the morning call had reported. Uh, we have some ideas on what, what we believe yeah. likely happened to, to David when he was out there. And it is much more than just what uh, what the reports were saying. And there's a real strange element to this because this group of people, as they were chasing David, David noticed that they had some strange insignias that they were wearing on mm. on their clothes. And one was a, uh, a uh, the letter A with a circle around it. And then beneath that, it was kind of like the likeness of a of a witch. Um, and some of the people in this group were, were apparently wearing this symbol, whatever it was. And he also said, which is really strange, that at one point when he was running, he got to a church, didn't he? And the church had lighted poles outside, and he said the same emblem was, was on these poles. Yes, yes. he hid out in the church for a while. Yes. And we've racked our brains, haven't we, for a long time, trying to work out this insignia, which could be... At one point, we said it could be literally the A for the air symbol, which is used in witchcraft or spellcasting as the element of air. Or it could be as simple as being a company logo that they were wearing. Sure. Right. Or the Tennessee Valley Authority logo, which has an A on it and which under the right circumstances, it's pretty scary looking if you're, you know, on the receiving nastiness. It's a black and white logo, and if you just look at it with the knowledge of this story, you can see crescent moons, you can see what looks like a witch's cradle, you can see what could be like a burning man wicker symbol. And we're looking at it knowing the story, but also for David looking at it, maybe in the twilight, and he's absolutely terrified, it actually does look quite sinister. Yeah. But it, you know, again, it could be entirely unrelated. We don't know. Very true. Very true. And and the thing is, is that we've, we've, pretty much located the church that he is claiming that had these posts and everything on it. So, I mean, that, that has been located, Mm -hmm. but, um, it's, it's just what the media had said. It was, it's a, it's a predominantly black church that seems pretty normal, pretty run of the mill for any church in, in that area of Tennessee. So there's a lot of questions with that. And, you know, one thing to keep in mind is that this church is about a mile away from where Heath broke into the house to call his fiance. Well, Sheriff Yoakum confirmed that there was a church there and he said it was, in his words, predominantly a black congregation. But also interesting was he said cults. Well, there's been a little talk of cults, you know, here and there, which is a weird thing to say, really, because you would probably would have just said, well, that's ridiculous. Although he, of course, was laughing at the story the whole time. He also confirmed, in his opinion, that the only vehicle that got into that field was Heath and David's vehicle. 
And he said, well, there were no other trucks in the field. It was not even possible to get a truck in there. When it came to the uh, newspapers trying to investigate the story 25 years ago, they were really getting the runaround because they went to all the different jurisdictions because really across several counties, so there were several sheriffs involved, but each one at that time was saying, well, the other one's investigating it. And then the F- office for the FBI was saying, well, actually, eventually they said, well, no, it's got to be the local Tipton County. The criminal investigator, the chief criminal investigator for the area, he did take it seriously, but he wanted Heath and David to come back and point out the areas that it happened. But ultimately, it seemed that nobody at all investigated and really just passed it from one to the other. Although then, they did a secret indictment. Is that quite a common thing, Dan? Or in- I would say no. And the reason I would say that is because of all the evidence that they had that these guys, well, I should say what, what, the law, what David's lawyer said, you know, all the evidence that they had for the fact these guys were chased and run off the road, it seems really strange to me that they would, or that David would get indicted and and brought back. I mean, there's something weird about that as well. And I'm not extremely familiar with how all of that works, but it's, it's bizarre to me because clearly these guys were the victims of something. And I mean, I, I, to me, the indictment is, well, David, ended up breaking into a sheriff deputy's house. Yeah, because he was completely exhausted. He was, you know, I would say on the verge of complete collapse and he needed food. He hadn't drank any water and the water that he was drinking was pretty much swamp water. And and at some point, and I should say that he only believed that he was hallucinating after the event happened with this yeah. ritual animal sacrifice, this wasn't, you know, it wasn't the the first night he was in there that he started drinking swamp water and was seeing things. And the the level of his hallucination wasn't that he was, you know, seeing phantoms chasing him. It was just that he was would fall asleep and he would think that he was at home. That was kind of the the level of what his hallucination was. So. You know, it's it's kind of a it's a weird story because you have to kind of divide everything and divide the times and figure out the timeline. And clearly the majority of all of these events happened when these guys were completely lucid, well fed, hydrated, and it only got to its worst point where David claimed he was hallucinating when he was already past Three this. Yeah. So, so it wasn't until much later that this happened. So you can't easily dismiss this whole thing as being, now oh, they were just hallucinating. They were on the road a lot. I mean, a lot of times when you're, you're driving on a road trip, I mean, you're, you're kind of taking sleep breaks. I mean, I know you don't get the greatest amount of sleep when you do it, but young guys, early twenties, you, they can pull off a long distance road trip without, you know, becoming mentally exhausted and hallucinating. So, you know, that, that idea right there is just, it's, that's insane to, to even believe that. And and the fact that these guys were completely dismissed as they were, is just, it's such a tragedy, such a tragedy. I mean, we could say, well, were there really human heads hanging in the trees? Well, then think about what else could you mistake that for? Maybe pig's heads. Right. And if they're. But what they're... would you make you think that you were seeing human heads in trees if you weren't? You know, why would you think, oh, I can see three human heads there? 
Right. And they're just hanging from a tree. And I, and I don't know, I don't know how they were hanging or how they were suspending human heads, but I can, I can tell you that, uh, I don't think I would make the mistake between a sheep's head and a human head. And I mean, granted the, the, the truth is that David lost his contacts at one point and was not able to see very well. But at the same time, you have to remember that he broke into a sheriff deputy's home and he was able to read the mail, the address on, on this home's mail to, you know, call his fiance to let her know, here, I'm at this house in Covington, Tennessee. Please send help. Yeah. We don't know if he's short or long sighted. So you could read mail. That's you might be able to see a distance. That's true. But, but even so, let's say for argument's sake, it wasn't a human head. It was a pig's head. But what else could look like that if you are short-sighted that you could mistake it for could have well been like a pig's head i mean if they're if they're hacking up animals and rolling around in the blood i mean clearly you know these are people that have some familiarity with with you know cutting up animals and and things like that. So, I mean, it it very well could have been a pig's head or or something, but, you know, I guess it all really depends on how far away these heads were to him that he would have been able to see them or not. So. I'm presumably not far away. Right. Because he, he also said to the newspapers that the words were that he observed numerous rituals. So presumably it was all going on in this. He said that they circled him like it was an arena. So presumably it was all quite up close. Yeah, and that's that's why I'm saying is that you you tie that situation into the um, the situation with these insignias being in the church, and and it really does have a true detective sort of feel to it. That you know there is some kind of a strange group in that area that is hunting people down, kidnapping people, terrorizing people, stalking them on the interstate to get them back toward Tennessee, but it just, you know, it seems like such hard work to do that. It's a lot of effort and a lot of time and a lot of money. To have crossed from one state to the next state and to go for hundreds of miles to do this. Unheard of. And that's why I think people that would look at this story and read this story, especially how it's laid out in the morning call and just the big joke they make out of it, it's just foolishness. I mean, there's just so much evidence that proves that, that this did happen to these guys. And, you know, it's, it's, it sounds outrageous. It sounds outrageous because really it's, it's something that would happen in a nightmare. It doesn't seem like something that, that would happen very often in, in real life, if, if at all. But so. imagine if you weren't a fit young man and they did it to you. These two guys were in the peak of fitness to be able to get out of it. But what if you had been an elderly couple? Right. Yeah. Elderly, a child. I mean, anybody. Mm. And, you know, that's that's the thing. And I, I almost wonder if maybe the point was not to follow them as much as they did to maybe even take them at that rest stop and something went wrong there or they got away too quickly or you know, they just, something unexpected came up when they got there. Um, but to me, I, I really do believe that the point was not to terrorize them. I I do believe the point was they were going to kill these guys. 
you don't you don't spend that much time chasing somebody down, toying with somebody in a swamp, um, ritually slaughtering animals in front of them, you know, having an eight year old point a rifle at them. If you're just going to say, oh, yeah, we were just joking around. We're going to send you back home after we're done toying with you. (laughs) I mean, it makes it makes no logical sense at all. I believe that whoever this group was, it was. And it's in. And the fact that they had these insignias, you know, emblazoned on a church in that area seems to indicate to me that this is a organized group that was doing things. I don't know if this is early human trafficking or this group was involved in things like that. But, you know, a lot of a lot of these criminal organizations are into some really weird sort of things. And I think the scary thing for us as well, though, is that. Heath saying to you, are you one of them? And with him being so scared that people were going to come and kick his door down, really, is it going to be this little local group who are real hooligans? Fair enough. But are they going to go all the way to Pennsylvania and kick your door in? Or is it somebody who's more of an authority figure that's going to turn up? And with them thinking these guys are DEA. So the weird thing is, I know you've said at one point it's almost like the finder's cult. Well, actually, it was run by intelligence or it was run by parts of some kind of secret government. So that's the scary bit. Could it possibly be organised? And these are the local yokels that are used to carry out the terrorising. But there's other people pulling the strings. Yeah, and that's that's one worry that I have always had about this too is is going public with a thing like this. I mean, let's just say that this is some kind of sanctioned, <laughs> sanctioned organization, like, like the finders clearly was, um, you know, and, and they were doing similar things where they were having these kids sacrifice animals and, yeah. um, you know, and they had Polaroid pictures of this and it, you know, it was really strange. Them in vans. Yes. It was really yeah. strange things. And that's why there's elements of that in here. And, you know, if you have 20, 30 people, running around in the bottoms and terrorizing people, it seems pretty unlikely to me that nobody's going to hear it and nobody's going to realize, Hey, there's something weird going on over there. And which is why I say that, that, you know, the Covington Henning area strikes me as a very strange kind of place. Um, you know, and what, what really backs that is, is the fact that this Mrs. Dixon who got, um, Heath and David, uh, out of Tennessee seem very aware that there was a real threat and that she had to protect them from this very real threat. So, you know, the question is, is what was the threat? Who are these people? What are they doing? I mean, are they still operating? You know, it's just, it, there's a lot of unanswered questions to yeah, this story. And it, yeah. And is it literally, it's just a very bad area The guys on the highway happened to live there. They happened to be on the highway. They herded them back to their area and it's some intergenerational family doing it. Or is it that this is the area that they choose to use and it's being organised by a more orchestrated um, setup? So, yeah. And, And that may well be. And that's why, you know, locating this church... Um, and some of the other things that, that we found, which we'll be going over, you know, in, in, in later episodes is kind of compelling that there really is more going on here. And, 
you know, we, we really, we genuinely do not know, at least not yet, whether this group is still functioning in that area or if there's even any remnants of it. But uh, generally that part of Tennessee is very poor. So a lot of the people are very, um, it's, it's poverty stricken. Uh, a lot of these people are very hard up. Um, it's, it's, it's a rough place to live. David in the hospital. The one thing about David is that when he's in the hospital, he comes into contact with a nurse there that tells him where he must have told the story to her that I was chased around in the bottoms by this crazy cult that was following us along Interstate 40. And then she says to him that cults sometimes sacrifice their own children. Okay, which is a really bizarre thing for a nurse to say to a patient who has just been through this kind of a traumatic thing. Well, the interesting thing is that when the morning call tried to find out more information, the hospital said he had never been there. Right. Although we know from, we know from David's lawyer, when he was charged with the break-in, that the hospital record showed that he had the paint pellet marks on his body. So obviously he was there, but the hospital denied. And in fact, the morning call phoned all the hospitals in the area and they all denied having had him. Which is strange because even the mm. even the sheriff had said that he was he was in the hospital. But they I don't think they said I think it was a Tipton Baptist Hospital or something like that. I thought they named it. And it's just, to me, that part also sort of lends credence to the idea that there's something really strange about that region in particular. Because if, if you have a nurse that's saying these things, and, I, you know, granted, I know that it's, you know, still 1994, you know, and, and times were a bit different, but it's still a very out there and strange thing to say to, to a patient, who has just been through that. So that's why I say it's, it's, it's these details that the morning call did document that kind of make this very interesting. And it, it gives you a little bit more information about what has happened and, and what's going on with these guys. And I mean, they covered it for what felt like weeks. There's a plethora of accounts that they reported on, isn't there? So they did an amazing job with documenting it all. Right. Right. And I mean, when these guys, and that, that's the thing too, is that when these guys got home, I mean, they both isolated themselves completely. Um, you know, David probably more so where he was just losing his mind over this. I mean, he was falling apart. He was reading the Bible kind of, I guess, you know, he was, his relationship with his fiance was, was quite strained and you know, he, he came back from this, not the same person that, that he was. And yeah. And his, his mother tried to get him to tell her what had happened to him and he just would not tell her. So what, what could it be that is so bad that you you just couldn't tell anyone right about it? and that that's why that's why i think that the the amount of terror that they were inflicting on david was um far worse than what the morning call was saying and i mean we keep in mind he was he was there for a few days it wasn't just you know a few hours yeah. and he's out i yeah. mean heath made a very quick escape out of there and you know only you know the 
his the the biggest thing for him was what happened at that at that rest stop. You know, that's mm-hmm. the most interaction he had with them aside from from hiding. And, you know, another thing that he had said is that they were out there with with flashlights that night, you know, looking for oh, him. Yeah. So, I mean, it's it's they're out there with they came prepared, whoever they were. They came prepared. They were out there with flashlights. They were communicating with each other using bird calls. Um, you know, they had pain pellets. This to me was like a like a chartered hunting trip sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And maybe that's, you know, one group of these guys is just kind of herds them into one specific area. And there was another group that was out there doing the hunting and terrorizing and, um, you know. there. Um, because we tried to get a description from Heath about this van when it all began. What were they wearing? What did the men look like? Did they look military types or what? What? Who were they? But he just wouldn't tell us, would he? He wouldn't. He didn't. He wouldn't again, say a word. Combined with him saying to you, "Are you one of them?" Kind of seems to be like it's a it's a bigger thing than we've run through the ideas. Was it travellers? Was it carnival people? You know, just yeah. playing with them. Yeah. But what happened to them in the swamp doesn't match with vans and cars on the highway who look like they're DEA. That's the in synchronicity of it which makes it all the more weirder it is and and you know that that's what i was seeing is that the the amount of of tracking they had on these guys from the time they spotted them on the interstate just before memphis and till the very end i mean they they just they had eyes on them and I interestingly, do you remember when we first started looking into this and you said, you know, these guys, I reckon they must have been communicating by CB radio. Yeah. And then we got his letter like two years afterwards, didn't we? It saying didn't. to you, yeah. oh, yeah, well, it was by CB radio. Yeah. Yeah. And that's that's why I was saying is that it's 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 very organized. It's very organized how how they carried it out, how they uh push them back where they wanted them. I mean, it was just, it was done just like clockwork really, because there were clearly people waiting in that swamp and it was the people in the swamp that were hunting them down and doing all of these things, you know, and, and, and some of the questions we have is where did this convoy drop off and these two cop cars pick up? Because a lot of and were they cop cars? Were they right? And they could have just <laughs> or been just unmarked cars. Just, yeah, yeah. Just cars, cars with no plates on. Yep. So that's that's a lot of the the strange sort of details of the story that that are hard to hard to figure out exactly what happened and um, you know who knows who this group is or if it's you know it was one group did one part of this another group did another part. But I, I think it was completely by mistake that David ended up getting away. I, I think that Heath getting away was one thing. And, and the, the level of fearlessness in this group that, I mean, they, they must have known early on that they lost Heath, that he was already gone. They weren't oh, going to yeah. find him. And yet they continued on. It didn't, for, it didn't stop them at all for days. And I mean, it wasn't like the police were out there looking. And that, that's what I'm saying is that it's it gives a lot of credence no to what fear. yeah it gives a lot of credence to what these two were saying that they believe that the police were involved in some way with this 
So, yeah, and it's that's a very good point. Yeah, they didn't stop when one of them escaped. Yep. You know, so then David got out as well, and I don't know. I mean, maybe you know, previous victims of this just weren't as able-bodied as David and Heath were, and that's why you know they they just they weren't able to uh, to catch these guys and do whatever it was they were going to do. Because that was Heath's exact comment, wasn't it? That um, when he wrote well to both of us, he said, "You know, I want to tell you everything because we were the lucky ones." And so he believed they weren't supposed to get out of there alive, didn't he? He did. He did. And and that's why I was I was saying early on that this was not the intent of this group to just let them go. And uh, they wanted to do some, some serious damage to these guys. And, and if the police were going to take them seriously, which you would imagine they would, if you go to the police with a story that you've just been hunted... Why did they have no fear about the police coming to the swamps to look for them and stop them? Right. That's 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 a very good point. And that's that's what makes this story so enigmatic because the cops don't seem to care, yet there's all this evidence pointing that this is a true story, that all of this really happened. So, you know, it might be a very tight-knit group down there where they're just kind of they're looking out for their own and that's just how they are. It's just how they operate and and they have been very successful at getting away with it and they maybe, you know, were too confident in their ability to not let people get away and this is what happened. You know, but it it's it really does almost come off like uh like some kind of a movie where it's you know, these guys are everyone's involved. and everyone's involved. Every, yeah, exactly. And everyone knows everyone's involved. And, and for whatever reason, it's even a church, a church of all places is somehow associated with it and carried those insignias and was a part of this group. And, you know, it does, it's, it's unanswered questions and, the strangeness of the story itself that that really makes it uh, it just makes it very compelling. Yeah, you just made such a good point about the fact that one of them got away and they didn't care. They just carried on for another th- two or three nights. Yep. they didn't care. Now that's not normal. So that does speak of some kind of open secret about everybody knowing and just like carry on, everyone. Oh, perfect. Yeah, that's a good word for it because it is. It, it, to me, that's what I see it as. It's it's a it's a open secret. And nobody, but I'll, nobody but the but but the nobody but the locals seem to to be aware of it, and they're yeah. clearly aware of it. Yeah, and if they and if if they weren't worried that 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 Heath might well, I mean that well, I don't know. In fact, well, no, we we know that he didn't go to the police when the woman rescued him because I presume he'd had enough of the police by that point. But they were not worried that one had escaped, and at any second the police could come marching into that swamp searching for him i mean did they even i mean think about that for three days he's out there or three three days 